Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I am Emily Booter, Managing Editor of No Film School. I'm John Fusco, Producer at No Film School. It is somewhat unbelievably December 1st, 2016, and on this week's show, a big question. Why is the film industry intent on ignoring box office numbers when it comes to financing movies? Plus, the six emotional arcs of storytelling, the Gotham Independent Film Awards, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York. We're here, as always, to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So a lot's happened since our last show two weeks ago. Um, of course, we've that means we've published two weeks of posts on nofilmschool.com. Um, and of course, at least tried to see some movies and or sleep so that we could have much more pep for this week's show. Aren't we peppy already? Pep? Yep. Hip, hip, hooray. Um, I want to point out a couple posts that went up that I particularly liked. Uh, on Thanksgiving, our writer Justin Morrow pointed out a film that was worth being thankful for, whether you celebrate Thanksgiving or not. Um, I didn't actually know about this. Martin Scorsese did a documentary in 1974 about his parents called Italian American, one word. Um, and as you may know, some of the Scorsese trivias that his parents have appeared in several of his films in various cameo roles. And um, the doc is the full doc is on YouTube now. It's very charming and was especially timely because if you're in or planning to visit us here in New York, there's a new show opening up next week at the Museum of Moving Image in, in Queens, which is um, devoted to Scorsese's life and work. I think it's going to be awesome. I also want to mention, in keeping with the season, that many people do charitable giving at this time of year, whether for tax purposes or as part of their holiday spirit. And so I put together a post for the so-called Giving Tuesday earlier this week with suggestions of over 40 independent film organizations globally that you could direct your holiday giving toward. Um, so if you're thinking about making some charitable contributions this year, definitely check that out um, to help get more indie films made and seen around the world. So what sort of thing are you donating to in that sense? Like, are you donating to production companies that make docs about important? Well, they're all they're all nonprofits on the list. It's a good question. I actually did a bunch of research. So they fall into different categories like um, filmmaker support organizations like IFP that we've talked about on the show several times and the International Documentary Association and that kind of thing. Then there are... Um, organizations that help protect filmmakers and journalists like National Lawyers for the Arts and it has an equivalent organization in England or the Committee to Protect Journalists where like if you know many of us are low budget filmmakers and we get in these legal quagmires that we can't afford to get out of these organizations help with that hmm. and um, of course there's always the good old fashioned supporting a crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter or Indiegogo which you know, it's a great time of year to do that. And you could even get holiday gifts for your friends out of it because, you know, you get swag when you donate to, to uh, people's crowdfunding campaigns. The idea to send a donation to one of the organizations that supports journalistic filmmaking is especially relevant, I think, just with like Standing Rock and some of the articles and news that we've reported over the past couple of months about sort of the tribulations that videographers have had to deal with there over the past couple of months. So that's 
definitely something it's something that i never really thought of because there's all these lists now um where you can actually like go in and buy stuff for people who are camping out at standing rock right um so that's an interesting variation from a film maker's perspective yeah and you know some people even give their holiday gifts as a donation to a place in your name so it's you know Anyway, I threw out a bunch of suggestions on the post, and we will link to it from the podcast post. In the meantime, we've also had some news happen over the last couple of weeks, so I will get into headlines. On the last show, we talked about some early Oscar news, but this past Monday, this week, the first honors of the film award season were actually held, so we're moving from speculation to actual award giving. Um, and these awards directly relate to our world here on Indie Film Weekly because they are the IFP's Gotham Awards. Uh, they happen here in New York, and they specifically recognize independent films. Shocking to no one, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight made out like a bandit, winning four awards, including Best Feature and Best Screenplay. We've talked about that film a bunch on the show and definitely encourage you to go see the drama about a young African-American man, both coming of age and attempting to come to terms with his homosexuality while it's still in theaters right now. His homosexuality is still in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's come out. <laughs> Oh, Already. boy. But there might be, I think there was a little bit of, of, you know, tentativeness before the movie came out, but now I think it's fully out and available for any member of the male public to go and check out for themselves. The male public? Well, yeah, I just feel like they'd be most interested in... Really? Because even Emily's parents loved it. That's not... I have two moms. Just kidding. <laughs> Listen, you grew up in California. <laughs> We're a non-judgmental show. Speaking of Emily, I have to congratulate our own Emily Booter, who's sitting right next to me here in the booth, for her predictive skills. She already covered four out of the five films nominated for Best Feature at the Gotham Awards prior to their nominations. Aside from Moonlight, which we just spoke about, she's written about Certain Women, Manchester by the Sea, and Patterson. And again, we'll link to all of those in the podcast post. What's the one I missed? The only Best Feature nominee that she missed was Richard Linklater's Everybody Wants Them. Those happen to be my favorite films of the year, excluding Everybody Wants Them, which I didn't see. So I think that I just have taste that aligns with these jury selections. <laughs> I really liked Everybody Wants Them, so... Oh, you saw it? No knock on that. Yeah, it's really, it was really good. I liked it a lot. I mean, this definitely makes me want to see it, given the caliber of the other films that they nominated. And we covered lots of films on their overall nominee list. One of the awards that I want to point out, because it's so relevant to the show, is the Bingham Ray Breakthrough Director Award, which went to Trey Edward Schultz for his debut feature, Cretia. The film actually takes place over Thanksgiving, so it's seasonally appropriate. Um, our writer, Micah Van Hove, interviewed Schultz back in April when the film was theatrically released, and it's a fascinating production story about how Schultz shot the whole film in nine days using his own non-actor family as the cast, and uh, the final product ended up being about 70% scripted, 30% improvised. So it's just one of those wild, very low-budget production tales that ends up creating an award winner. Also, even though it was really, really low budget and the scope was small, it feels like a really big movie because uh, it's just really dramatic and operatic. So many to add to the list. The Gotham Awards lineup seems to be also in line with the assertion of Emily and most critics and industry folks that we've talked to throughout the year who kind of all agree that it's been a really strong year for indie films. 
I'd also add that it's been an especially strong one for filmmakers of color. In fact, the African-American Film Critics Association, AFCA, just came out with a statement calling 2016 the best ever year for blacks in cinema. So the one Oscar prediction I can offer is that finally the Oscars might not be so hashtagging white this time. In other news, Slated, an online film community that connects projects with talent, investors, and distributors, has been pouring some money into comprehensive data analyses of the film industry in recent years. The last study, which was published in June, focused on the lack of theatrical exposure for female-directed films. Of thousands of films made for under $25 million, those directed by men received three times as many screens on average as those directed by women. Slated's newest study looks at the demographic data of 1,600 feature films that were released theatrically in North America between 2010 and 2015. They found that the biggest number of films shown in movie theaters were made by mid-career directors around the age of 40. Now, this may seem appropriate, because after all, experience is everything, right? If only the money told the same story. By calculating the ROI, or the return on investment, based on a mathematical equation involving global box office sales, marketing costs, and production budget, Slated found that younger directors are actually more profitable than their middle-aged counterparts. So why is Hollywood so quite literally invested in middle-aged directors if the younger and fresher voices are the ones who rake in the ticket sales? Why are we funding 66.4% of production budgets for creative talents over the age of 40 when 66.2, nearly the same number, percent of tickets sold in this time period actually went to moviegoers under the age of 40? It sounds like we need to start funneling money into the Damien Chazelles of our time. Um, he made Whiplash when he was 27, and he made The Short, which preceded the feature, when he was 25. That's really amazing and probably encouraging to a lot of our listeners. I still find it so hard to believe that, like, the Michael Bay films and the Steven Spielberg films and, you know, Robert Zemeckis films of the world aren't grossing more than, say, a Whiplash, but... I guess the data shows it. And now bouncing into some data of a different kind. This is a very math-heavy show today, which is, you know, to be expected since we're all pretty uh, great at math. I wrote an article earlier this week about the six emotional arcs of storytelling, why you should use them, and which one is best. And this article was based off of a study that was done at the University of Vermont earlier this year. But it was just accepted as a thesis and published a few weeks ago. So this has really been an ongoing story that started decades ago with Kurt Vonnegut's failed master thesis that stories have shapes which can be drawn on graph paper. Essentially, what these graphs reveal is that every story has a certain shape. Many stories, in fact, share the same shape. These shapes can be found by tracing the ups and downs of the protagonist's journey or the emotional arc of the story. What Vonnegut's rejected master thesis defines is the emotional arc of a story as a line plotted on two axes. One is the GI axis, mathematically similar to the Y axis, which places ill fortune, defined by Vonnegut as sickness and poverty, at the bottom, and good fortune, which Vonnegut defines as wealth and boisterous good health, at the top. The BE axis is the equivalent of the mathematical X axis which represents the beginning and end of the story. So the line flows somewhere in between. So for those of you who aren't as good at math as I am, the x-axis 
is the horizontal axis, which runs across, and the y-axis is the one that goes up and down. So think of it as good fortune, bad fortune, on the y-axis going up and down, and beginning and end at the horizontal axis going across. Okay, good, cleared that up. Now fast forward to June of this year, when that group of students in the computational story lab at the University of Vermont submitted their study entitled The Emotional Arcs of Stories Are Dominated by Six Basic Shapes. These researchers used a filtered subset of 1,327 stories from Project Gutenberg's fiction collection, picked 10,000 words based on their general implied sentiment, and rated them on a scale of happiness. To do this, they used a graphing tool called a hedonometer, which is a tool that gauges happiness or pleasure for its ability to generate meaningful word shift graphs, or graphs that measure changes in word frequencies, producing spikes or dips in happiness. Does that make sense? Yeah, so a word like um, concerned would have a dip in happiness. Yeah. And a word like uh, what? Present? Yeah, or life or joy. Yeah. So each word has a certain score based on a happiness scale. So in simplest terms, the University of Vermont examined the emotional arc that is invoked through the words used. The story arc is drawn in relation to the frequency of happy or sad words present within each portion of the book. This arc and the frequency of when happy or sad words appear can be related to the ups and downs of the protagonist's journey. So when all of those arcs were compared to each other, the researchers found that most of the 1300 plus books that they studied all fell into six emotional arcs. So those arcs are rags to riches, which is a steady ongoing rise in that emotional arc. Tragedy or riches to rags, which is the opposite, a steady ongoing fall in emotional arc. Man in a hole, which was Vonnegut's favorite, which is, <laughs> yeah. I bet it was. It was, man in a hole. <laughs> it's a fall and then a rise, which is sort of looks like a U on a graph. Icarus, which is the opposite of man in a hole, a rise and then a fall. Cinderella, which is a rise, fall, rise. Oedipus, which is a fall, rise, fall. What's more, they found that a few of the story arcs are actually more successful than the rest. And these three emotional arcs are Icarus, Oedipus, and Man in a Hole. I think from a screenwriter's perspective, this is really invaluable information. So at least initially when you're forming your idea or your outline, it's something that you can really use to make sure that your story falls in line literally with a literary structure. There was someone who actually commented on this article saying that it was just like a cheap, lazy way to write a script, which I, I mean, I don't fully agree with because I think it's sort of like a fundamental part of understanding how literature works. So Yeah, it's narratology. Right, exactly. I studied it in college. So you have that initial outline to focus on and then you put in your plot. I mean, there are a million ways to right, tell there are. your- Right, like, exactly. To, to fill, flesh out the details. And I think that this is a very handy and useful way to do that if you're struggling with basic story structure or even if you like need a conflict or see like want to know where in your story the conflict should fall. And let's face it, even though, you know, we can get a little snooty about it in the indie film world, a lot of us are here to actually make a living. And if you're trying to make a screenplay that has a higher likelihood of success and you know that some of these story arcs have proven more popular 
you can still be wildly creative in all your plot points and settings and characters, but have some sort of structure that is more likely to entice audiences. And actually, what I found most interesting about this is that you would expect that like popular stories would end with mostly rises, but two out of the three, Icarus and Oedipus, actually end with a fall. And I am personally more attracted to stories that uh, that end with a fall, and I always thought that I was in the minority, but it seems as if those are the ones that actually do well on a narrative structure. Well, when you think about like the movies that win Academy Awards over the past, like however long the Academy Awards have been in existence, there's never a comedy that really ever wins. Or, it's yeah. always like drama. The only like films that are seriously considered for content- contention are the ones that are. Tragedy is more compelling than anything else. Yeah. So. And for this week's gear news, we're bringing in the wonderful tech writer, Charles Hain. Hi, Charles. Hey, Liz. Hey, everybody. So in gear news this week, DJI has been on a crazy roll lately with the Mavic Pro in September, October's update to the heavy duty M600, and now a huge update to the Inspire with the Inspire 2. Uh, we've been doing a series here on the Inspire 2 working with DJI, and which they're promoting with a short film shot by Academy Award winner Claudia Miranda, best known for Life of Pi. It's a beautifully shot short that shows off a lot of the innovative features of the Inspire 2, one of the coolest of which has been evolving the camera. They've moved the recording hardware up into the airframe instead of out there on the camera body where it had to be stabilized. And while this means the camera isn't interchangeable with cameras from the Inspire 1, the benefits are well worth it. The camera is now up to 5.2K raw video, 60 frames per second at 4K. It can do real-time 1080 edit proxies to an SD card at the same time it's recording your 4K or 5.2K, which is a feature that we might expect on like an Alexa or a RED, but I don't think anybody ever thought we'd seen a drone, certainly not in 2016. Um, Everything we've seen so far from the Inspire 2 is really impressive. At uh, the same time, GoPro hasn't been doing as well. Their Karma drone is having some trouble. It's been falling out of the sky. Wah, wah. Uh, if you haven't yet, you can watch some of the videos on YouTube. So far, no one has been hit with the drone. No one's been hurt. Uh, but it's a tough month for GoPro. They also just cut 15% of their workforce in addition to the 7% they cut back in January. And they're shuttering their entertainment division. So, by the way, for those of you who don't follow drone news as closely as we do, the backstory is that GoPro recently came out with their first drone, this Karma, as a direct competitor to some of the lower-priced DJI models. And it's already falling out of the damn sky. But... Despite that, they're doing their best to make it up to karma owners. They're going to have good karma about the karma. If you, uh, Yeah, I deserve that. If you return your full karma package, including the Hero 5 that it came with, they'll give you a free Hero 5, which is like a $400 value, which is very cool of GoPro. In post-news, VLC Player just added support for 360-degree stills and video. Uh, If you don't currently use VLC, it's a free video player that will almost always open any video file you throw at it. And Indian doc filmmakers have relied on it for years to help getting trouble shots into a usable format. Working with 360-degree camera manufacturer Gyroptic, VLC now supports real-time 360 GPU playback, which is... Very cool. And they're working on integrating with all the major VR platforms next year, which should continue to give us an avenue for getting content onto those platforms. Because like one of our worries is is that 
to play an Oculus, you'll have to go through the Oculus Store, and then there'll be control there. VLC is going to be working, so you can use VLC on Oculus and all the other Vive and the platforms coming out, and it's great that they're doing that. VLC is a free download from a French nonprofit, so if you find that it saves your ass on a gig or that you use it all the time, we really recommend you donate and support your vendors. Last up this week, French photographer Matthew Stern is a fiend for odd lenses and has been shooting the strangest and oldest lenses he can get his hands on for a while now. His latest experiment involved 3D printing a lens barrel in order to mount a vintage piece of glass on his modern camera, and he was able to create some really stunning imagery with it. What's particularly cool about this is how much customization is possible when you're 3D printing a lens. And it really points to something we think is going to be bigger in the next few years as 3D printers become more common. I think you're going to see a lot of filmmakers building their own accessories and building their own lenses. He worked with a professional 3D printer, but everything he did on this you could have done with a MakerBot. And there are 3D models online for PL mounts and other lens mounts. So I think we're about to see a real explosion in crazy custom lens designs. Uh, Interestingly, also, they're starting to 3D print the actual like glass element of the lens in optometry and ophthalmic purposes. And uh, so hopefully we'll start to see some filmmakers 3D printing the lens element itself sometime soon. Well done, Mr. Stern. That is so cool. My dad's an optometrist and he's going to be very disappointed that I do not know how to say ophthalmic. (laughs) Sorry, Dad. Thanks, Charles. Sorry, Dad. We talk about Vimeo and Indie Film Weekly a lot, and that's because everyone knows that the world's best filmmakers call Vimeo their online home. Now, they've offered a special discount on Vimeo Pro memberships for you, our listeners. Save 15% when you go to vimeo.com slash professionals, get pro, and enter the code NFS at checkout. When you do, you can upload up to 20 gigs of video each week and showcase your videos with unlimited bandwidth in Vimeo's ad-free 4K player. Plus... They just launched a cleaner and more customizable profile page that helps you showcase your videos. You can even upload a cover video. You'll get access to all of Vimeo Pro's powerful tools and join a supportive community of other passionate filmmakers and video professionals, just like at No Film School. A couple things you should know. The discount's limited to one per person and is only valid for your first year of membership. So for upcoming opportunities this month, um, we've got several deadlines and these are all um, kind of cool fellowship and lab opportunities versus grants this week. Coming up with a deadline tomorrow is the Just Films Fellowship. It's the organization we mentioned earlier, the IFP, and it's made in New York Media Center. They're seeking talented New York-based visual storytellers and media makers to take part in 12-month fellowships. Your projects must be in the media and technology industries, focus on social impact storytelling and equity issues, and Again, you have to be a New York City resident, at least at the time that the award is given. The fellowships are open to all kinds of creatives working in an array of nonfiction forms. So not necessarily films, but in addition to films, episodic content, web-based media projects, social impact gaming, 360 video, VR, and more. It sounds really cool. Um, Fellows receive a 12-month membership at the Made in New York Media Center, which um, I used to work out of, and it's an amazing facility in Dumbo right under the Brooklyn Bridge. You get a full-time incubator workspace there, mentorship by industry leaders and IFP staff, access to classes, networking events, and all of the facilities that they have. 
And if you're directing a feature-length documentary or an hour-long documentary that is currently in post-production, you might be interested in the Film Independent Documentary Lab, which has a deadline of December 5th. Documentary Lab provides creative feedback and story notes to participating filmmakers and helps them strategize for all aspects of distribution, marketing, and festival runs. Finally, due on December 7th is the application for Artist as Activist Fellowship. The fellowship provides $100,000 over two years to independent artists and art collectives who have a demonstrated commitment to applying their creative work to the public sphere. You also get opportunities for professional advancement. And the 2016 and 2017 cohorts of the Artist as Activist Fellows are specifically addressing racial justice through the lens of mass incarceration. So like the 13, or what was it? Exactly, 13th? I thought the same thing. So I highly recommend you watch Ava DuVernay's new film 13th on Netflix before you apply because it'll give you some real uh, juice to go with. Juice? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Members of the tribe. Okay, Members it's not about Jews. And just a reminder that the Rooftop Films early bird deadline is tomorrow, Friday, December 2nd. Tribeca's final deadline for shorts and experiential work, which is VR, AR, etc., is tomorrow as well. This week we also see Film Fest deadlines for the Toronto Indie Doc Fest due December 3rd. This festival takes place on May 7th and is the sister to the New York City Indie Doc Fest. Is it only one day, or it starts on May 7th? It is one day. Wow. One day only. Okay. One pops shop. 24 hours to see a movie. One hit wonder. That's right. The DC Independent Film Festival, due December 8th. This one's on February 15th to the 20th, and it's DC's longest-running indie festival, having gone for 19 whole years. Also, the Athens International Film and Video Festival has a deadline of December 5th. This one takes place April 3rd to 9th in the very cool town of Athens, Georgia. Worth noting that it's an Academy Award qualifying festival that's been going 44 years. And finally, the Northwest Fest, one word, has a deadline of December 4th. This one takes place May 5th to the 14th in Edmonton, Alberta. That's in Canada, our neighbors to the north. Hopefully, you'll meet Justin Trudeau. And it is their premier documentary fest, having been run for 32 years. I hate to be that guy, but it's actually our neighbors to the northwest because of the Northwest Fest. And this week in Ask No Film School, Andy Reynolds reached out to us on the boards because it's his first time acting in a film. And he asks, so it's my first role. I'm well used to performing as a singer and voiceover artist, but how do I learn my lines? Are there techniques? And fortunately, we've got John Fusco right here to answer him. Yes, yes, it's true. I'm here. And I am a credible authority on acting, as I had to convince my editor-in-chief earlier this week. Just how credible? Well, let me tell you. I don't know. You always act like a jerk. My resume spans four years of training at New York University, where I attended the Meisner Studio, uh, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, (laughs) the Experimental Theater Wing, and also had minor classes in business of entertainment, media, and technology. An actor with a brain! That's right. I'm very good at math, as you heard earlier in this episode. (laughs) Anyways, 
as I said, I went to acting school for four years. And the one question I always kind of annoyingly got from relatives during these Thanksgiving or holiday breaks was, how do you memorize all those lines? Did you just call our Ask No Film School questioner annoying? Well, no, I mean, this guy has a reason to ask that because, you know, it's his first time acting and I can understand why you'd think it'd be, I guess, like daunting. But really what I'm here to say is that it is the least important part of being an actor. This is the part of being an actor that requires absolutely no technique whatsoever. It's literally just, you know, memorizing lines by rote. So of course you should know your lines. I'm not saying you shouldn't know your lines. You should know your lines, absolutely. But try not to stress too much over learning them, the actual process of learning them. So what I mean by that is when you're memorizing a line, don't also go into it looking to memorize an affect or a way of saying that line. I'm going to say that's the biggest mistake a first-time actor could possibly make because acting is all about living truthfully in imaginary circumstances, as my former mentee Sandy Meisner once said. Wait, what's the light bulb uh, version of your acting school? Light bulb version? Like uh, how many Meisner students does it take to screw in a light bulb? Oh, it would be how many Le- how many Meisner students does it take to screw in a light bulb? So I mean, say so. Say how, that, many? how many? How many? No, no, no. You say to me. Oh, how many Meisner students does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many Meisner students does it take to screw in a light bulb? It's because Meisner is based on repetition. So it's literally like the first year of my training would be two actors standing next to each other and repeating what the first one just said. Two actors standing next to each other and repeating what the first one just said? Exactly. (laughs) So you would do it, but that just shows how unimportant sort of like lines are within acting. I guess they're such good actors. Wait, he was your mentee? No, he wasn't. He's dead. really experienced. He's very dead. But... I had a great teacher named Vicky Hart, so shout out Vicky. That, that's all to say that as an actor, the thing you should really be focused on memorizing are the circumstances which surround the lines. When you memorize the lines themselves, they should just be words. So when you memorize, memorize by rote. Once you have those words in place, the circumstances and the action then allow those words to manifest themselves into a performance. Some tactics you can use to get these words in place and memorize that I used to do are A, first and foremost, the easiest thing, unless you're a loner, is to get a friend and just run the lines back and forth. Again, with no effect, don't try and perform it. Just say the words over and over again and do the scene until you have them down pat. If your dog talks, can you do it with your dog too? Yeah, I mean, you could do it to a wall if you wanted to. You could just like, you know, pick an inanimate object, say your line and wait for the glass to like talk back to you and then say your next line that's definitely another way to do it another thing you can do which was really helpful for me especially when i was at the royal academy of dramatic art because i had just had so many shakespeare monologues to memorize and you know those get very tedious and they're they're complex anyways you can carry around a little moleskin or a notebook and if you have a large chunk of text to memorize you write the first letter of every word of dialogue down on the page so for example to be or not to be that is the question would become t b o n t b t i t q do you write this in your moleskin with a quill i wish if i had a quill or ink so just do this over and over again until you have it memorized and can write down without cheating at all 
That was really helpful for me. When I was in regular class, I would just write it on whatever I happened to be taking notes on at that time or even like assignment papers um, because you can do that anywhere and that'll really help set it into your mind. It really is the most tedious part of the job memorizing these lines, but honestly, it should be the easiest. The hardest part is finding the emotion within yourself to back up words later on when you're filming. So don't stress, just carve out some time for yourself, relax and do the work. Let a candle Put on some music if you want Slip to. Slip into the bathtub. Slip into the bathtub. File up, fire up your favorite quill. Find a hole to be in if you're a man and just live in that <laughs> hole. These are the movies coming out this week on VOD and theatrically. Speaking of men in holes, there is a very odd and slightly, um, what would I call it, depraved <laughs> romance movie called The Lobster hitting Amazon Prime Instant on December 1st. It's Yorgos Lanthimos's odd crowd pleaser and festival standout from last year, starring Colin Farrell, Rachel Weisz, and John C. Riley. It takes place in a dystopian near future where anyone that's single is forced to go to a hotel and find a mate. But the, the criteria for finding these mates are very arbitrary and often do not make the best and most successful couples. So if you don't find a mate, you turn into an animal. You get to choose what animal. That's the good news. But, you know, you have to be an animal. Lanthimos previously did Dogtooth, which is the strangest and most absurd movie that exists to my knowledge yeah it's really weird speaking about dystopian futures they live is coming to hbo on december 1st hbo go hbo now whatever hbo streaming platform you decide to use they live is john carpenter's 1988 sci-fi film which is actually incredibly relevant today um it stars professional wrestler rowdy roddy piper as oh my a god drifter. i love it already rowdy roddy piper yeah. do you know him oh yeah yeah, I was going to ask if you've seen the movie. Have you seen the movie? No, but if it's a sci-fi film with Rowdy Roddy Piper, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, it's John Carpenter, too. Put it on your list. Piper plays a drifter who discovers a pair of sunglasses that allow him to wake up to the fact that aliens have taken over the Earth and have, in fact, been there for a really long time. It's my favorite John Carpenter film. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, I'm... And this is the guy who made Halloween, The Thing, and Escape from New York, among like 30 other movies, I think. If any of you are familiar with the street and graphic artist Shepard Ferry, this is actually the film where he got that idea for his Obey campaign and his entire like aesthetic, basically, his clothing line. Um, the glasses not only allow Nada, who is the protagonist played by Piper, to identify aliens, but they let him see the messages implied by advertisements and other staples of our capitalist lifestyle. So, like, if... But, go ahead. I wonder what he would say about uh, Wes Anderson's new Adrian Brody Christmas short for H&M. I mean, it would say, it would say like, purchase underneath. So it'd be like if you see like a poster for Donald Trump or any presidential figure for that matter, it like he'd put on the glasses and the poster would disappear and it would just be uh, in big block letters. It would say obey underneath. I love the wrestler tie in, too, because Shepard Fairey's obey whole campaign started with Under the Giant as his icon. That guy must like wrestling. <laughs> so I'm personally really excited for a film that's coming to Netflix on December 1st today. It's in high school, it was one of my favorite films because I was obsessed with anything philosophical or mind-bending. Whoa. Oh, wow. <laughs> Waking Life, which Richard Licklitter made early in his career using rotoscopy, a very intricate 
animation technique, which involves shooting live footage and then animating over it so that it's some semblance of real footage and animation. It's basically about a protagonist who wakes up to find that they're in a dream and they're constantly being transported from dream state to dream state, meeting various people and discussing the meanings and purposes of the universe. The whole film was shot and edited into a complete live action version before the animation began, and the movie took three weeks to shoot and another three weeks to edit using Final Cut Pro, but it took another 15 months to animate, and it took 250 hours to make one minute of animation. Yeah, that's that rotoscopy thing that you were talking about, and I think I read that it was the, I mean, it's the first movie to have ever used that technology. And here's a little tidbit for you guys. Um, little tidbit. Little tidbit. Little tidbit. I don't know if you know this, but the study of dreams is called oneurology. And a thing that, <laughs> don't take that for your quill book. I'll take, it's in there now. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the film, one of the characters, uh, the character is constantly reminded that they are dreaming. And one of the one of the staples of being in a dream state is that if you if there's a light switch in a room in which you are dreaming, um, you can't turn it on or off. It's just always on or always off. So next time you're dreaming and you happen to have a little control over yourself, <laughs> try to turn off the light. It doesn't work. Hitting theaters tomorrow is Burn Country, and the film was formerly called The Fixer when it screened at Tribeca earlier this year, where I interviewed the director Ian Olds. It stars James Franco, Melissa Leo, and Dominic Reigns, and it's about an accomplished fixer who relocates from his home in Afghanistan to Northern California. Also coming out tomorrow is a movie that we've covered kind of extensively from the beginning. Talk about predicting good stuff. We predicted this good stuff, too. The Eyes of My Mother is coming out tomorrow on Friday, December 2nd in limited release. This is Nicholas Pesh's debut feature, The IMD synopsis describes it as a film about a young, lonely woman who is consumed by her deepest and darkest desires after tragedy strikes her quiet country life. And that does not nearly do it justice. So I'm not going to say exactly why it doesn't do it justice, um, but we will just say that her desires make this film fall staunchly into the horror genre, and it's certainly not for the faint of heart. So it is not for me. I saw it at Sundance on a complete whim, not knowing what it was about because I was given an extra ticket by Micah Van Hove. And later, after I saw the movie, I realized that I went to school with a few of the producers and even the director himself. He's so, my friend. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you to talk more about it. But before I do, I would just mention that we did a video interview about the merits of film school, which is that you get to meet people that you work with later on. That's what they said was like the biggest takeaway from film school. If you want to check out that whole interview, go check it out in the article associated with the podcast. Yeah, actually, um, Nick, the director, crewed up with mostly people he went to film school with. So that included the cinematographer, Zach Cooperstein, whom I spoke with last week about all of the crazy rigging setups that he did um, in order to capture this black and white horror. I don't think we mentioned that it's in black and white and it's shot exquisitely. Zach said that he used Artemis and took photo boards of literally everything in excruciating detail on location with stand-ins before they even got to production. So when they got to production, they had a very limited shooting schedule and they were able to execute with precision and meticulousness. And finally, coming out on Tuesday, December 6th as a limited release, a movie that was probably my favorite film and interview that I did from our coverage of Tribeca back in April, Nerdland. 
Nerdland is an adult animated comedy with some serious and weird, strange talent attached to it. It was directed by Chris Pranowski, who's one of the creators of Adult Swim's Metalocalypse and founder of the animation powerhouse Titmouse, and it was written by the guy who wrote Seven, Andrew Kevin Walker. It stars Patton Oswalt, Paul Rudd, and Hannibal Buress. It's about as grotesque as an animated film you could possibly make. It sort of blows Sausage Party out of the water in that respect. Blows Sausage. This movie, there's a scene where at one point one of the characters farts and it's such a powerful force of flatulence that his pants rip, his underpants rip, and then there's a zoom in close up of his butthole. So Man in a hole. Yeah. Um, in that sense, it's incredibly detailed, and I talked to Walker and Pranowski about how they built such an intricate world for the film. You can check out that podcast, World Building Tips from Seven writer Andrew Kevin Walker and Metalocalypse director Chris Pranowski on iTunes or wherever you download our show. Well, I'm going to go off and work on my adult animated film, Man in a Hole. So we will leave you for this week, and thank you so much for joining us. As always, Subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes if you haven't done so yet. And stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Yell Booter on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John. On Twitter. And we're all at No Film School. You can read about everything we talked about on the show and more about the craft of filmmaking on nofilmschool.com. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.